From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. The way you make a cadence transparent to every org in a business, it allows for an integrated approach that avoids the collision course day in and day out. The cadence is is a forcing function for everything to happen in a sequence all the way back to day one of a calendar. It's got to fall into a cadence that's repeatable. Otherwise, don't bother. It doesn't work. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Bart Finelli, who's the CRO of OutSystems, a platform that provides the tools for companies to develop, deploy, and manage omnichannel enterprise applications. Prior to joining OutSystems, Bart was part of the team that grew Splunk from $60 million in annual revenue to over a billion. He recently teamed up with a former colleague, Tom Schodorf, to publish The Success Cadence, a book that documents his formula for sales success. On today's show, Bart will make a strong case for why a rigorous sales training regimen is one of the highest impact, but also the most undervalued aspects of sales. Bart, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here, Justin. So Bart, I know that you grew up in Astoria, New York. Maybe we could start off and we could just get a little bit of color on young Bart, what it was like for you growing up back in the day. Oh, man. If you ever envisioned uh, in the Northeast, uh, you know, you know you, how you have usually a three-family house and all, all the family lives together in it. That that was the, the typical Italian upbringing. And, and that was me. I lived... Uh, I lived in a five-room flat above my grandparents on my mother's side, and you know, if it was dinner time, my mom was yelling yelling out the window uh, for me to come inside for dinner. Like that—that that was kind of the the mo. And my dad was a fireman, and he worked uh, New York City fireman, and he he worked uh, two blocks from the house. So so I I knew we knew where he was if he was going out to fight a fire because we could hear the. Uh, we could hear the fire trucks leaving the firehouse. And I used to walk past it going to school to Catholic school when I was a kid. So, so you had mom, mom and dad, you had the grandparents. Tell me about the ants though. You had the ants too. Oh, uh, everybody was, well, everybody was an ant. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the, the, the crazy part about it. So, so in the traditional Italian upbringing, you know, you got cousins and aunts that aren't, aren't cousins and aunts, but everybody's looking out for everybody. So you kind of learn, uh, you learn that nature of um, of family and or a, a unified group of people that, you know, they're they're looking out for you or or working on your behalf to help you out and protect you and raise you. That was the that was the Italian uh, the Italian way back in the day. So was your was your family reserved? Did they let you know where they were coming from? What was, what was the general attitude like? <laughs> I get I get to air some dirty laundry. Um, it was crazy. My look, so uh, it was old school. It was he- heavy-handed old school. You 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 fell in line or or you got backhanded. Very different than um, what we what we all exist in today. Um, but you, you knew that you knew that if if something was going wrong, it was because you screwed up and and not for the wrong reasons. And, and, and the family was just trying to protect you. 
So, you know, there's an interesting lesson that comes out of that, though, which is when you know someone is on your side, they can be brutally honest with you. And you're going to take that because you know where it's coming from. Yeah, I agree with that. I, but I think that's learned. I think that's learned um, even in. So there's a parallel um, to business, right? That's where I think if you if you don't believe the leaders that you have, if we will pivot from family to leadership and, you know, you know, like mom and dad are looking out for your best, best interest, even though they're not your favorite people when they're reprimanding you. Like, that's just one of the things about growing up as a kid. Well, when you're in um, when you're in business, if you don't have respect for your uh, the people that are leading you, then you won't take their advice. So, and, and I think that that's the you have to have respect for your leaders, and you got to be coachable and, and willing to listen and understand what they're trying to help you with. That's a learned skill, by the way. I don't think everybody has that innately. Your mom obviously was a big influence on you, as was your dad. You lost your mom relatively early in life, though. I think when you were in, in high school. How did that impact you? Yeah. So she, um, my mother had cancer in high school and then passed after. It's kind of crazy. I, I've blocked a lot of, uh, I blocked all the dates out. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some deep therapy at some point where I'll, I'll uncover the specifics, but uh, I think it kind of defined who I, who I became. I was the youngest boy in an Ital all Italian family, and I was the last, um, the last uh, child. So, I was the only person to carry the Finelli name forward. So I, that was like a big to have you know losing your mom and not having your family yet to show your mom you're going to carry the legacy forward, you know, and to give her grandchildren and things like that. That was probably the hardest part for me. But, you know, if I look back, I would love nothing more than to still have my mom and my dad around. I don't know that I would have woke up and found my way had I not been dealt the, the hand that I was dealt. It's, I don't know if that's, it's just maybe that's just how I spin it so that I can find the, the best outcome. But I am who I am based on that trajectory and experience in my life. And it, it, so it defined me. You know, the years afterwards weren't so weren't fun. You know, you're a kid trying to find your way. And um, with a you know, old school Italian dad that pretty much was going to have you find your way. He, he, he wasn't going to do it for me. <laughs> so here I am. So you graduate from high school. You skipped college and went straight into the work environment. What drove the decision to skip college? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so. I did community college, so I, I'm not. I always say I'm not college educated. Never got a degree, um, but I was thinking about it, and I, I had a bunch of friends that uh, that went to college right after high school. My dad said, "Hey, you got to. You want to go to college? Then I'll, I'll help you out. You can go to college." I said, "I'm. I'm not going to go. I'm not ready. I don't want to go. I'm going to take a quarter off or whatever." And then I came back, and and I said, "All right, I'm ready." He goes, "Well, tough shit." You, you missed your opportunity. I told you, you had one chance and you didn't take it. So I, I learned the the value of a word of words at that point. Very young. I had to learn to believe in some cases when people would tell me what a rule was. And if I was going to break the rule, I was going to be punished. Well, he kind of gave me the example to live by. You live by your word. And um, so I didn't go. So I was on my own. And then I felt like I was missing out. 
So I, so I had a bunch of friends that went up to Florida State. So I, I went up to community college in Florida State because I had no ability to get into Florida State. I was a terrible student. And um, so I went to Tallahassee Community College and, and I was bored out of my mind and I was having a terrible time at it. And a friend told me, hey, you know, my, uh, my sister got a job at a company called Tech Data Corporation in Clearwater. And she's making all this money doing sales, inside sales. So um, I, I picked up myself on, on uh, every Thursday night and I drove from Tallahassee to Clearwater, Florida. And I sat um, on Fridays in the HR office and tried to get an interview. <laughs> so I was, I was, as I was making my notes, I was thinking through this. And, and that was like the first lesson in perseverance because I drove, I had to do it like three weeks. It's five or six hours to do it. So it was ridiculous. And I got the job and, uh, <laughs> and I never looked back. So three years I stayed with um, tech data from 92 to 95. And then I, I took a job in Atlanta in 96. So you got your, you got into the sales profession. At what point did you realize though, man, this is the career for me. And this is where I want to be great. I went to work um, after tech data um, up in Atlanta. I went to work for a company I was calling on was uh, HBO and company. Now it's McKesson. And I was an inside sales uh, rep uh, at McKesson and came up and worked for them. And I went to one of their awards dinners. And I remember the top rep getting some massive bonus check on stage at the annual awards dinner and a gold Rolex. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm all in. And that was it. I never, I really never looked back at that point. Selling was the only thing I kind of knew how to do. Um, Bart, I had a similar experience when I was back at Siebel. I was in product management at the time. For some reason, Siebel had overbought uh, the, the rooms for their kickoff. And someone made the decision, let's just invite everybody in the company down. So <laughs> I find myself sitting in the room. I'm a product manager. And on top of that, they invited us to the, the award ceremonies and when they rolled out the comp plan. And I remember hearing about the first Rolex and, and a couple of the other incentives. And I looked over at the person next to me, who also a product manager, and I said, I think we missed the boat on this one. Yeah, I'm in the wrong role. <laughs> so uh, suffice it to say, moved into sales eventually. I will say, though, sales is one of the hardest jobs of any job out there. The emotional wear and tear, the... Um, you know, the focus that you've got to exhibit, the the resilience, people don't understand that unless they've actually carried it back. There's different cultures. You can live, you can live in a country club sales culture, but you're certainly not going to make a ton of money and you're, you're not going to have a trajectory in a market or um, an industry. You're going to, you'll exist and, and you'll probably do pretty good. Uh, participation is rewarded, not... Um, not performance. <laughs> and, and you don't know that you don't know the difference until you get into um, an environment where it is all about performance. And if you don't perform, you're having, you know, hard conversations like at the end of every day with your leader. And it is really, un it is really uncomfortable. Um, and it's extremely stressful. And it's difficult to go home at night, you know, and, and go to family and friends when you're you're struggling sometimes to get through. You got to break through as a seller. You, you really don't know until you force yourself through this discomfort of working the process, believing in the system, 
not being fearful in any way and breaking glass and then cleaning it up at the same time, it all builds your resilience and, and makes you who you are. But it is the hardest thing you can ever do uh, because your paycheck is dependent on it. So along the way, you had the fortune of attaching yourself to some pretty talented sales leaders. I think you refer to them as the champions of business. Tell me a little bit about who's up there on that shelf for you. You know, there's a really long list, um, but I'll 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 zero in on three. And so one uh, one was one of my first mentors uh, slash coaches, um, Sidney Sack. So he was. Uh, he was my good friend, my buddy Dave's dad, and we'd play golf together. You know, he, he would coach me. I was, I had, um, I struggled with not having a degree in, you know, like I, in my mind. It was, I don't know, what do they call the, who's the other person in your mind that gets in your way? I, I had that guy saying, oh man, you can't do, no one's going to let you do this. You don't have a degree. And he said, no, he goes, you don't you don't have to have a degree. And he told me, he just told me a story about guy CEO that he worked for that never had a degree. And, you know, he was wise enough in business to learn on the fly, position himself for success. And, and that was all that was, was really required. So I really latched onto that. And um, so that, so I mentioned him in the back cover of the success cadence and, and um He's kind of the first person that gave me the enough belief that I could go do it on my own. Then I, I moved over um, to BMC Software and I got into uh, the Southeast where Schodorf was running um, the Southeast and, and did a multitude of jobs at, at BMC. But I remember vividly, um, I was working in the South and we went through a giant riff in, in, at BMC back in the day. and. I actually went on the road with Tom from Atlanta to Charlotte, and we were, were moving people from the business. And the fact that he let me in, I was, a, I was just a seller at that point. And I, I was going on a tour with him to, to change the dynamics of the business and listen to phone calls all the way there, phone calls all the way back. And he basically started coaching me and mentoring me. And so I hold him in high regard because he gave me, he kind of let me into this, to the secret zone where, you know, as a seller, you're, you're kept on the outside. He let me in and um, I never, I never let that go. And I always kept going back and asking for more. And then I ended up evolving a bit through um, my, my time at BMC software. And then Tom left BMC and went over to Splunk. You know about obviously um, McMahon and Blade Logic coming into BMC, and that was late in my tenure, from 2008 to 2010, roughly. I learned a whole new way um, of running a business, and you know there weren't a lot of people that survived or that meshed well in the in the culture change. But I, I was I was one of them that got to stay and learn a, a whole new way to operate from an operational perspective deep level of accountability and rigor, day in and day out accountability, um, being challenged on every fact and every point that you're you're bringing forward from an opportunity perspective and learning how to apply that um, to my own um, skill set and then morph it together. So if I give you a three, if there's three, it's Sid Sack, it's McMahon, even though I didn't know McMahon very well, I interacted with him a dozen or 15 times. And then Tom all had different um, 
aspects that I learned from and shaped exactly who I've become in my career. It feels like there was an interesting inflection point, particularly around when you met Sid up until then. And and pull me back if I'm going too far, but you lose your mom. It seems like you kind of say, I got to figure this world out on my own. If I can't count on my mom or family relationships, who can I count on? And there's like this period where you're just trying to figure it out. But when you met Sid and then these other leaders, you opened yourself up and said, I can learn from these people. And that that recollection or that realization changed everything for you. Yeah, it, there's no doubt. Um, so there was a period from like early 20s to, to late 20s, late mid 20s, where I was, I just didn't, you know, you're rebuilding the way you operate and and live your life because of, of a big change. Um and not having an eco, you know, a, a family around you anymore. Essentially, you're right, you're on your own, um, with the exception of my sisters and, and my dad. So at the same time, that period that you're describing, I also met my my now wife. So she takes full credit, and every without a doubt, she cleaned me up and she set me free. Um, but I, I, and I'll give her that credit. But but from a business perspective, um, Sid Sack, yeah, he he, he and uh, Dave. You know, and the people that I, that I surrounded myself with at that time made a huge difference in uh, giving me the belief that I could do it. So know? now the career is really tracking. You're at BMC. Things are working well. You made an interesting move at that point in your career, stepped into field enablement. And actually, that was a theme that you continued when you went over to Splunk. Was that yeah. a detour for you or was that foundational to who you are as a sales leader? It, it was an unexpected detour. And 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 it's interesting, you know. I started thinking about it. This is where you your lessons come full circle, and then as you mature as a leader, you realize where your head was at that time is exactly now where my head is when the leaders that came in in the transition of Blade Logic into BMC were looking at me, going, "Hmm, I don't know this kid." He can't run a territory. I was running the South at the time. He can't run a territory for me. He doesn't know my playbook. He's got to find something different. And that was the dialogue. And uh, and so my leader at the time came to me and told me that. I was like, you're out of your effing mind. I'm not doing that. And I'm not taking a pay cut. And that was my attitude, literally. And so they went back to, to McMahon and team and, and, and they're like, no, that's perfect. We want that kid. And um, so, so the, the edge that I had, even though I was pissed that I had to take a detour at the time, there was a, um, there was a learning that window, that two years of overlap where I was doing leadership enablement and operational stuff with, um, with Blade Logic and BMC at the same time and bringing those, the, the groups together kind of predefined who I am today in a lot of ways. I think that there is a level of operational rigor that you develop in field enablement that is critical to the success of any sales organization. I was just on a call today with our CRO and he is waving the banner. We have to execute. We have to execute. We have to execute. We need to be rigorous. Strategy is important, but if we can't execute. And so that mantra, I've seen that repeated again and again across just about every sales leader I've talked about that's that's successful. There's a legacy approach where you got to do the heavy lift and build business uh, on your own. There's product led and product led is a mechanism that accelerates um, businesses for sure. However, even with product led, that does not 
replace the need for rigor and discipline in day-to-day sales execution. And I'll say the enablement element where there's a misconception in enablement is people think of it as soft or as content or product. In our program, that's the last piece. The first piece in the enablement program is all about operational rigor and discipline and how you sell, period. You head over to Splunk. Shodorf is over there. I heard you quote, actually, Godfrey Solon, I think was the CEO at the time. Yeah. And uh, there was a great quote in there that that might have been missed. Can you repeat that one? He had a bunch of them. I, you know, you repurpose a lot of things. So you, you can't come up with everything yourself. Like we, <laughs> but um, one of his big ones was um, we pay for performance, not for attendance. <laughs> I love it. He was pretty bold. And I love that one. And the, the one that I, I like to lead with transparency. So I, I use his, I use that quote all the time. I give him credit for it. Um, at the end of the day, if, if you're not going to follow the playbook and perform, if you're not going to meet your leading to lagging indicators um, and learn, at least give it a try that stuff, because we know it works. We wouldn't implement it if we didn't think it works um, or we didn't know it works. Um, then you can't stay. And that's the transparency is key. Like I'm going to lead with transparency. So I have my own principles. And I always say, uh, uh, if there's anything you're going to get from me, it's it's me leading with transparency. So now look back to number one, I'm going to pay for performance, not for attendance, Godfrey. And um, that's a fact. So I'm not a liar. I won't be a liar. That's for sure. You guys had something really special going over there. I think you entered the business, what, like $60 million when you came in. Yeah. Billion two yeah. with you. Yeah. Well, it's it was one of those phenomenons where um, it was a new market. It was somewhat we were first mover. It was compliant. It, it was very popular in its own way in, in that I think it was on the beginning of the concept of product led. It was also a perpetual model, which doesn't really exist anymore. That was only 10 years ago. Um, when I came in roughly 60 million, you downloaded the bits of the platform to buy, and then you could buy them and run them in production. And it was the same bits that you would scale to, to terabytes and terabytes and terabytes, which was crazy. Then the company had to pivot to term or um, subscription and then pivot to cloud. And so I went through kind of like an MBA slash doctorate degree in all of those elements over seven years. Um, and the operational rigor that I learned in the transition of Blade and BMC and from 2008 to 10 came, came right to my rescue because uh, the motion that we put in place, and I was running enablement at the time, but it was, it was enablement with a seat at the table. Like I, I, was, I reported to Schodorf and I was peers by reporting structure to, to all of his sales exec leaders globally. The big fear at the time was me coming in and run, trying to um, run it like a big company, like a BMC software. So, so it was like I was, you know, I was not necessarily welcome in that sense. But it was another, I'll give Godfrey another tagline. He's going to love this. Um, a little bit of process will set you free. <laughs> that was one of his taglines. So I was like, all right, don't over rotate. And, um, and Tom gave me the keys. He's like, look, design the, design the program. Like you design the program and the tools, we'll implement it and we'll live by it, but do it with the leaders in the field so that they don't think that you're an alien coming in and telling them what to do. And that's when I learned, you know, for, for the field, from the field. 
So David Jenkins, he he ran he uh, started whiteboard selling. He trademarked that for the field front from the field. Sandler put you got to get their fingerprints on it, or it's not they're not going to agree to it. So all of those come through to the selling process. Like you're going to sell customers something they don't want. Take them through the journey and get their hands on the process. You know, get their hands into the process with you, and go through the process. Um, share it with them and show them exactly what you're going to do. They welcome you in and they'll, they end up becoming your champions and selling on your behalf. It all, it all blends together. So while you were at Splunk, that sales philosophy really solidified. Now as the CRO of OutSystems, you're, you're able to build a sales organization from the bottom up. I always love to ask sales leaders, what's your playbook? Bart, you've made it very easy for us. You actually wrote, literally wrote a book, which is your playbook. A big premise of the book is this concept called willing and able. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what willing and able means? So if I go all the way back, uh, I'll go all the way back to BMC and we talk about taking good things from different places. It was the mid 2000s and before Blade Logic came in, we had um, um, a leadership academy called the First Line of Defense or Flood. And if you think about BMC, was a, it was fitting. It was a big um, legacy business that we did really big transactions for the most part, seven and eight figure multi-year transactions and mainframe to open systems to IT service management. And, and the four box presented itself in my, in my life the first time there, and it was called skill and will. And it's been around for a really long time. Sandler was a trainer in the early days at BMC Software as well in the Southeast, and they had a willing and able model, and it was the same concept. Um, so, you know, you fast forward through all the things you learn, and that, that four box proves itself out constantly. You either have um, the willingness to learn um, or you don't. And if you don't, you either have the skills that are required or you don't. And, you know, and there's some variation of the four box where if you're not going to learn something new because businesses redefine themselves constantly in our markets and the markets make us redefine ourselves, meaning you're not coachable or you're not willing, then there's no way you're going to make it. So, it's a forcing function to, to find people that are willing to go on a growth journey with you. And if you lay out your curriculum, your tooling, and all of the um, elements that you use to run your business day in and day out in, the skill, in a skills category, and you solely focus on that, then you really can't miss because you're pattern matching those that are willing and not to the skills required to do the job. And Look, make no. There's no um, no mystery about it. If you're not willing, then it's probably not a good fit, and that's the transparency aspect. We make it up front. We, we talk about it. It was a, it was a, a big learning curve, by the way, at, at um, Out Systems to get it into play, um, and most people don't believe it in the very beginning. Um, and then you know you evolve to the point where there's less of the non-believers because they're not around. Um, and then there's more believers and then there are non-believers and you got a pattern that works. So, so I, I buy into that framework, willing and able. My challenge is, and I've, I've interviewed a lot of reps 
virtually every rep when you're interviewing them will tell you, I am ready to learn. Teach me. I'm an open book. Yeah. But that doesn't always pan out. In the interview process, how do you actually find the people that genuinely are willing to learn? Um, yeah, well, you're right. And um, and that's a that's a hiring flaw that most um most of us have in the very beginning until we're, we realize we have a lot to learn as leaders. It's the hap- happy years in hiring is the same. They're the same happy years um, when you're trying to sell a multi-million dollar transaction and you, you haven't gotten to the nth level of detail. The only way we found that it works, if, you, if you're going beyond your network, because um, your network knows what, what culture you're building, right? That's one of those things. That, that I'll go back to... Um, I'll go back to Blade Logic. You knew you knew what you were signing up for. You were either you were joining the special forces or you were not. You're you're in or you're not. That's the only two. There's only two choices. And so so now we'll fast forward. You know, uh, I had to build my own brand and my own rigor or my own approach and my own network through my time and um, relationships at Splunk, which is really where I cut my teeth in high growth. And I benefited from my peers being really successful at that at what they were doing, and and me learning with them in this high growth model. Many of them, as you know, went off, and you've interviewed you know some of them that have gone off to do other things from BMC as well as from Splunk. At the end of the day, in the hiring process, I come way up front with how we onboard, what's going to happen if you don't onboard the right way, what models and frameworks we use. And I let them know, along with my leaders, the responsibility. We're on a call today where my, it's my leader's responsibility to share leading the lagging indicator scorecard day to day. Skill will look back every quarter and you got to play in the framework or you can't you can't stay here. And it, to the extent that we have now implemented a graduation on our um, our hiring onboarding program within the period, the disciplinary period, if you think globally, every country's got a different disciplinary period. You can't, you got to pass your onboarding and your stand and deliver before you make it out of your disciplinary period. Otherwise, guess what? We're, you can take us for a ride. We don't, you could just exist and, and we can't do anything. So we've, we've started right-sizing our whole hiring and onboarding process to match pattern match globally with the local laws. And we're, we're upfront about it. Look, if you're not going to play within the framework, if you don't believe that leading to lagging indicators are an important way to, to run a business, it's probably not a fit for you. And in fact, there's a, uh, there, there are checkpoints on our onboarding and our boot camp, and you have to pass. And it is a panel pass. It's not, it's not me as your leader or the recruiter. It's a panel pass. You got to you got to pass the test at the end, so we we just expose it up front. We're we're not perfect at it, um, but usually a lot of them will pull the ripcord if they're not the fit for that. I've heard you talk a lot about leading and lagging indicators. What are your leading and lagging in indicators, and how have you operationalized those in your business? You know, there's uh, activity uh, is as long as you have the right level of quality and activity, it, it really solves to. Um, the needs of the business, but you got to have um, you got to have them linked together. The activities from a leading the lagging perspective. Most most of us will look back at our careers and we have had a leader or run a company where they they see uh, pipeline coverage as the leading indicator. 
it's actually a, it's actually the lagging indicator to activity, and you got to break your activities down into pieces. Um, so for us, it's um, you know if you think about it from a traditional sense, there's always going to be marketing activity that's fed through a pipeline um, in and to the to the field. Well, you got to call down your marketing qualified leads, but that's only a portion of your day to day. You got to you got to cold call, or you got to find personas that fit. Um, your technology and you got to proactively do um, warm introductions, get introduced through your network and start to build momentum there. And then you got channel and partners, but you know, those three, as an example, that that's kind of the starting point of activity on a daily basis that leads to unique meetings. And you got to have a, you got to have a predefined number of, of unique meetings weekly that meet your business that map to personas and profiles in the types of accounts that buy your technology. And, and we've zeroed we've zin, zeroed in on all of that. So, so it's activity on, on leads and or packing my own lunchbox and building my own pipeline and or partners. It's unique meetings. It's rolling opportunities. It's rolling coverage on my pipeline. And then it's pipeline progression or opportunity staging, which is another overlooked um, technique on opportunity quality. You know, we do checks at at different points in the quarter to ensure reps are progressing their opportunities through the pipeline. And if they're not, then they're forced to move them and move them out so that they don't have phantom pipeline. And, you know, those are our, those are our leading the lagging indicators. If we do all that well, then our, our quarter is fairly predictable. So what happens if somebody isn't hitting the leading indicator metrics? Oh, it happens. Well, we have it. It's all it happens all the time. There's usually a whole bunch of uh, excuses. <laughs> so I'll I'll quote. I got a. I'm going to quote a. So Prakash Vyas is he he works um, in our field success org, and he I was on with him uh, earlier today, and he gave me one of the most profound quotes, and this it ties perfectly to this. He goes, you know, I'm sick and tired of of the reps provide, you know, given excuses when I'm in there trying to help them advance their cause. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Because we were talking about the scorecard and then unique meetings. And he does evangelism and messaging and he goes out and does meetings with executives and things like that. He's like, if they would just internalize their responsibilities and stop externalizing their issues, they would be successful. And, you know, I hooked onto it like immediately and I go, you know, you're so you're absolutely spot on and the best reps and the best leaders, they don't complain. They completely turn the table and they take control of what they can control and they prove you wrong. Like, I'll show you that I can build my own pipeline. I'm not going to sit and and complain about it because I'm going to come to my own rescue. And that's the key. Like, so. So reps and leaders do it all the time. And I'll have a hard conversation with them daily. Like empty the excuse bag, man. Like, what do you want me to do? All the time, we're going to, we're going to sit here and talk about why that metric is the wrong metric or the, the, the way it's being measured isn't rolling up the right way to your scorecard. We're losing precious time waiting to fix that when all you need to do is pick up the phone or craft a targeted email to an executive that you've been introduced to. Don't worry about it. We'll fix that, but don't wait because if you wait for perfection, we're all going to get, we're going to get someone else is going to take over. I won't be here and you won't be here. 
just go. So, you know, look, if we could just internalize our, uh, internalize our responsibilities and actually do the job, um, life becomes easier rather than complaining about the nuances of a metric. The metrics are there for directionality and for to ensure we're moving in the right direction. It's not meant for us to debate a metric by a, a one-point scale or whatever it may be. It's ridiculous. It's really telling when that when uh, you're hitting a hot spot. Obviously, like they're focused when we're focused on the wrong things. We already know we've made a mistake. So that's some good color then on the willingness. On the ability side, that's where the training comes in. And yeah. you are probably one of the biggest proponents of training I've met. Tell me a little bit about how you approach training at OutSystems. What's the cadence? And if I'm a new rep, what can I expect to go through? Yeah, great, great question. And, and you know, I'll go back to, to board alignment. When I came in, and, and I'll tell it in the form of a story, the first question was, can, can you hire more reps? And, um, and, and I said, absolutely not. And, and the, then, the, the, you know, the follow on questions, well, I don't understand why that's your, that's your, that's your gauge for growth. And I said, well, I have no idea, you know, I have no idea what I have. I don't, I don't know if I can hire more reps because one, I don't know if we have the right system. I don't know if we have the right tools. I don't know if we have the right playbooks. I don't know if we have the right people. Um, so I bought time. And then I overinvested immediately in staffing um, the enablement function. And most companies will do the opposite. They, they won't. And it's a huge flaw because without a pattern, without a playbook, without a common vernacular, without a common tool set, and without, without a cadence that maps all the way up to interactions with the board, I'm going to scramble to get relevant for that board meeting every time. But now, you know, six quarters in, um, of rebuilding a team and, or I'll actually it's, yeah, it's almost six quarters uh, rebuilding a team and continuing to improve performance while implementing a framework of tools of, um, of playbooks of vernacular that's all repeatable and scalable. It lets me be completely relevant in all of the BOD, the board interactions and the SMT interactions and all of the interactions with my leaders are the same and them with their contributors and their teams are the same based on that whole playbook. So if I've now come back to um, a new hire coming on board, there's a digital element, right? Where it all starts with recorded learnings. Then it goes into um, a workshop or a hands-on boot camp done digitally today, unfortunately, but it's still a working um, case study. And that all gets concluded um, within a finite period of time. And there are passing elements and failing elements to all of um, the sections. It culminates in a panel graduation where they actually present back out um, on a real opportunity. The whole thing is basically is real time too. It's not fictitious in any way. The tools are what we use day to day. The vernacular is what we use day to day. The messaging and the playbooks are what we use day to day. The forecasting methodology is what we use day to day. So we don't teach anything that isn't in the critical path of running our business. And it's still, some people don't understand that. And I, and I find it hard to believe that anybody could argue with that. So what you're going to get is a predetermined path for you to be really successful. And if you're not willing to do it, you're going to fail and you're not going to be kept. <laughs> that's what you're going to get. And if you're willing to do it and you can get on the scoreboard in the first three months, which is usually our indicator for um, 
a high propensity of success, lights out, we go and we win together. And that, that's a big indicator. If they can sell a transaction in the first three months, um, not necessarily net new, but if you can get on the board and you using the methodology and the system that we have, you end up being really successful. So we're zeroing in on all of those elements constantly and, um, and we live what we teach. So when, when a rep gets on a forecast call, they're hearing the same things they learned from day one. When they're on a strategic opportunity review, they're hearing the same things they were taught and the same tools they were taught from day one. And, um, and they're answering and or providing color in the same, same way. When we get to a QBR, it's no surprise. It's the same exact uh, way that we run the business in the QBR. So it's meant to be patterned out for someone that was uneducated. Like I needed a very simple way to run a business and, and making creating a framework that was time-based. So day, day one of a quarter through to a board meeting, which is um, usually month four, uh, beginning of month four. So you get, uh, you know, you get a month to prep for the board meeting. And walking it backwards was a way to put myself in a box and, and giving me something to, to zero in on with my, collab, my team of collaborants, which is, you know, field success and enablement, value consulting, solution architects, customer success. They're all a part of the same framework and the same onboarding and process and the same tool set. It's all the same. You're laying out a rhythm to the business, which makes a lot of sense. And it brings me back to what you called your book, which is the success cadence. Yeah. I remember when I first picked up the book and I zeroed in on that word cadence, I thought it was, was an interesting word, a surprising word. Tell me a little bit more about why you chose that particular word. Every, if you don't have a pattern, success pattern is not good, um, by the way. <laughs> if you don't, if, so, I like so cadence. I like cadence. Cadence, is, you know, if, if, you, if you look up the word, it's... It, it, it makes total sense. And it's the fitment of, um, of a cadence into the way you run a business and the way you make a cadence transparent to every organ of business, it allows for an integrated approach that um, avoids the collision, the, the collision course day in and day out. He said this, she said that, or this leader said this, and the other org, they're not responding to that. They missed their deadline. The cadence is is a forcing function for for um, everything to happen in a sequence, all the way back to day one of of uh, of a calendar. Can be a fiscal year, can be a quarter, can be anything. But you you just you got to have it's got to fall into a cadence that's repeatable. Otherwise, don't bother. It doesn't work. I wanted to actually end on a piece of advice that you and I were talking about, it came from your dad related to the power of a few trusted relationships. Could you, could you repeat that piece of advice that your dad gave and what it's meant to you? Well, it's held true. So, so, you know, I, I always, I always say I learned a lot of hard lessons from my father he, because he was really old school and I, and I would have never traded that either. There's, if there's one thing, um, he left with me, he goes, if you can count, he, he told me, if you count on one hand at the end of your life, the people that you really can count on that have helped you, that, that you've trusted and they've trusted you and, and, and have gotten you where you're going or where you've, what, what you've, to what you've achieved, you, you will be really, really successful. Like if you can fill that hand, five people would be, think about that. That's crazy to think about. And he's, he was right. Like how many people stand by your side through, through no matter what 
comes your way and support you and help you fight through it. You know, I, I can only say there's probably two or three at this point in my life. Schildorf is one. My wife is, is another. He, these are people that you end up relying on. You try to pay that back. So I want to be those, I want to be that to other people. So that's kind of helped me redefine who I am. But I I never really thought that was valid, by the way, until I got through um, some hard times in my life where, you know, he's right. And this goes back to champions. Champions fight on your behalf no matter what. And you got to have champions in life and in business like it's all the same. Bart, those are great words to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I'm so happy to have been here and be a part of the talk. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.